Uh, my name is Bill Lusty. Uh, I'm a acute physician at the RDE, uh, the Southwest Premier League Hospital. Uh, and uh, assisting me, Catherine Miller, uh, brand new to the region, having transferred from uh, the Wessex Deanery, going to tell us something about uh, some very good ambulatory practice up there. The title of the talk is if this is such a no-brainer, this whole ambulatory care thing, well-described, well-funded, kind of the funding streams are certainly there, uh, then why aren't we doing it or able to do it? Uh, and looking in particular at the kind of barriers that prevent us from providing an ambulatory care service and looking at what we're doing locally. So hello, uh, we're going to look at what the idea of ambulatory care is and why we're doing it, uh, and we'll take in the current picture as I say, and we're going to look in particular at a model of ambulatory care which, uh, whilst it has its problems, is the best that we have in our region. And just uh, a, a debate perhaps at the end or some discussion around how we develop this further and try and take the higher lying fruits, that you might say in management speak, I mean DVT went years ago, uh, that was the lowest of all low lying fruits. Uh, here's why we do it. Uh, this is uh, a theme uh, up and down the country. This is Royal Cornwall just a few days ago describing a doubling in their surgical cancellations. Um, uh, I think increasingly I'm hearing in the news a little snippet towards the, the middle of the kind of uh, Radio 4 news. You know, North Wales hospitals close down, go into crisis management for a week. And it's not infrequently now that you hear that in the winter. And I don't think we, I don't think we heard that on the news perhaps five or six years ago. Uh, and perhaps it reflects the national bed base uh, such that it's really been paired to the bare minimum. And the flexibility now is such that the smallest crisis provokes uh, a mega crisis. So why do we do it, ambulatory care? Because patients enjoy it. Uh, feedback is virtually universally positive in ambulatory care up and down the country. We reduce bed stays, uh, we in doing so reduce hospital acquired infections and we improve the use of our resources. And perhaps most importantly if you speak to your management in your hospital it's money, money, money. The way the tariff is now working and we'll touch on that in a little bit. So the King's Fund uh, 2010 uh, published QUIP, putting pressure on the NHS, inviting us to save a mere 20 billion up and down the NHS, restricting income. Uh, to a tariff of activity that was set back in 2008, tariff uh, activity exceeding that tariff uh, being paid at 30%, a strong incentive uh, to ambulatorise as much of your care as possible. The King's Fund have also published on ambulatory care and they reckon one in six medical patients could be treated on an ambulatory basis. We as clinicians in 2007 came up with our response uh, to the demand for ambulatory care with our ambulatory care directory. How many people in the room are familiar with this document or have read it? Few. Few. A lot of conditions. Uh, 49 emergency presentations to hospital, that's across everything. Uh, 31 of those uh, being medical conditions. It's been updated since 2012, the latest update to that document. And I think the hope was, uh, between the kind of uh, the way the wind was blowing from money, patient satisfaction, that uh, ambulatory care could do for medicine what day case surgery did for surgery. Uh, obviously, the situation is somewhat different. These patients are completely unselected, uh, and we haven't really got there by any means. These are the medical conditions uh, which are deemed suitable. Uh, we are now calling them in AMU speak the ambulatory care sensitive conditions or ACS conditions. Uh, and the numbers on the right pertain to the percentage of patients uh, that it was thought could be dealt with on an ambulatory basis. DVT, of course even in 2007, was already being dealt with pretty much exclusively on an ambulatory basis. Uh, there's some other stuff there. PE, I think, has changed dramatically 
over the uh, over the last few years. Certainly, uh, you know, back in the mid noughties uh, during my training, we had everyone in, didn't we? But now it's becoming quite rare to miss PE. Um, there's some interesting pickings there: uh, jaundice, headache, end of life care, self harm, and to further. Uh, I suppose, incentivize us to ambulatorize our patients. The tariff now for 12 of these conditions uh, is being set at a zero or one day stay for the patient. So that's all you're getting paid for in these conditions now. Uh, and they are, out of these, cellulitis in medicine, PE, asthma, acute headache, seizure, self-harm, DVT, lower respiratory tract infection without COPD, and chest pain. So you're getting paid now for zero or one day stays for these patients. If you fail to discharge them, you are you're incurring quite a penalty financially. So the pressure's increasing. So we've got increasing pressure. We've got our best practice tariff payable for the, uh, for the new conditions, subject to a zero day stay. We had our directory, as I say, the number of conditions uh, being subject to the zero day stay or one day stay tariff is likely to grow. And we've also got the challenge of potential non-NHS competition, because these are quite easy pickings for the private sector. To further confuse us, we've got the confusing picture of the NHS. Um, we've got walk-in centres, fairly new on the scene. We've got urgent care centres, most of them by GPs. We've got our ED service, we've got our AMUs, we've got 111 and NHS Direct. Uh, so it's confusing for patients and us. It's difficult to imagine that if you started to design the NHS from scratch, you would come up with such a convoluted uh, and complex number of options, which somehow seem to be less than the sum of their than, than their sum. Uh, WIC in particular hasn't really worked in numbers terms. It has attracted seven million, well, almost seven million consultations per annum, with an increment of twelve percent uh, annually on the work they do. But we haven't seen that reflected in a decrease in. Uh, in ED and AMU uh, attendances. Uh, GP perhaps have seen some improvement out of hours uh, and they've noticed that their consultation rate has gone down slightly but the acuity, the complexity of those consultations has gone up. So what happened uh, to ambulatory care? Now where did we go wrong? I guess you know we all felt quite pleased when DVT was uh, ambulatorized uh, years ago. I think we felt worried about the risks we were taking with these patients. I think in the NHS there's always fear of change. Motivation can be difficult to come by in our line of work and uh, in AMU in particular uh, you could allude to a lack of what I call headspace in terms of uh, you know we're constantly dealing with the crisis in front of us. Uh, and sometimes I think we've lacked a consensus uh, view with specialty on different conditions. I think we in AMU like to feel we're operating in the same way that our specialty colleagues would. We want them to, we want to feel able to support in particular, we want to feel able that they would. We want them to feel able to support us when things went wrong. Uh, and perhaps a big uh, problem, which is perhaps a bit of a myth, the people that wear these slippers. And uh, I'm going to offend my elderly care colleagues now by calling them muffin-topped feet patients. And the first thing you see of these patients normally is their slippers, as they're wheeled in feet first to your unit. But uh, I, you know, you could you could challenge that as a myth, uh, saying that these people, you know, could be allowed access to ambulatory care. These are figures from DVT Clinic at Royal Hospital from just recently. Uh, and the numbers in, uh, highlighted at the bottom are the elderly patients attending. So you can see they, uh, they make up quite a significant number of attendances. Uh, and transport are the ones that required hospital transport to bring them to that clinic. Uh, but it's interesting to note that uh, you know, in December, none of their patients required hospital transport. I'm not suggesting by any means these people have driven a motorbike themselves to ambulatory care clinic. 
but someone's brought them, a carer, uh, a residential home, bus, uh, you know, uh, a relative. So I think the, the, the notion that these people have to be wheeled into hospital uh, in ambulances is perhaps misplaced. Uh, and I think it's an option that we don't actually explore. This is nationally 2010, um, so three years after the ambulatory care directory came out, looking at the number of trusts offering how many ambulatory conditions to GP colleagues to access. And you can really see that the majority are offering either you know, none through, through up to eight conditions and a few kind of trailblazers hitting greater than 12 conditions. Locally, we'll go through the hospitals locally. Uh, on my patch, we've just de well, the GP service in our hospital has been decommissioned and the money recycled into providing CGA, which the, my, my elderly care colleagues will know is the comprehensive geriatric assessment, seen as a valuable tool in A, turning around patients on the front door where possible, and B, improving their care generally. We've got DVT dealt with at the walk-in centre. We have pathways for PD, some chest pain, uh, chancellor arteritis, pleural effusion. We're picking these cases up with a band six nurse when the uh, call comes in. Uh, Tor Bay, the only trust here to offer single point of access, truly, through an ED. Uh, behind that, they have their AMU, which combines ED, uh, acute medicine and surgery on a multidisciplinary unit. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's, quite, there's very little ambulatory care selected on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, and they have a small consultant body making things more difficult for them. Smaller again, North Devon, again a case-by-case -case basis, uh, patients accommodated using the DVT suite. Uh, and on top of their DVTs, perhaps only one or two per day. Is that fair? Royal Cornwall has an ambulatory area subject to being swallowed by the medical take. Out come the chairs, in go the beds. Uh, so that's variable. Uh, downstairs, uh, an acute GP service runs ambulatory care in minors with the ED, as the pressure of beds allows in ED. Uh, they have a, a new frailty unit team with a big elderly care MDT. Uh, and a very well-developed uh, DBT service. They also aspire to a single point of access. Which brings us on to Plymouth, uh, where something interesting is happening. Annie Carter should have been giving this talk. He's supposed to be my friend. But uh, this graph, I think, is interesting. So on the top line here, increasing trend, bottom line, decreasing trend. These are the one-day stays in red, uh, and the discharge on the day, the zero-day stays in blue. And you can see there's a nice reflection as the one-day stays diminish and the discharge on the days increase. Uh, they've really concentrated, they've, they've honed in on patients they think will be a zero-day stay, and they're using senior triage to spot them. They're also proposing the use of the AMB score, which we'll touch on later if we have time. So Plymouth are generating impressive numbers, uh, and Annie's just put a paper through. Uh, they're taking 27 patients per day through their ambulatory care unit, with a conversion rate of 22%. To the uninitiated, the conversion rate is the number of people that end up coming into hospital. So that is to say 78% of their patients are discharged on the day, and 37% of their medical take at best is through their ambulatory care unit, which I think is extremely impressive. How have they done this? Mainly through collaborative working with specialty. Access to specialty input and specialty tests, cardiology, echo, uh, and same-day decision-making in chest pain, gastroenterology, same-day scopes, Respiratory, helping to manage outpatient effusions. Neurology run a separate take in Plymouth, and they're part of the party. They also have a link to primary care through the acute GPs who are co-located, uh, and they're able to prioritise investigations for their ambulatory patients on the day, usually. There's a consultant presence in 
what I think is extremely important, a separate area, and that's probably one of the most important uh, tools for generating good ambulatory care. A separate area in particular that cannot be occupied by trolleys or beds. Patients love it, 100% would recommend this service to their friends, and that may be down to the fact that three quarters of them are seen and discharged within two hours. Beyond that, I think it's had a very positive effect. Uh, those of you that know Annie, you know she's a fairly deeply cynical person, and uh, for her these are quite optimistic statements, well they're very optimistic statements. Uh, its success here must be attributed to a combination of proactive clinicians, an innovative ward manager, a facilitative management team, the dissolution of silos and specialty engagement. Is that true, Plymouth? <laughs> our, vibrant <laughs> our vibrant initiative has yielded a note of optimism here at Derriford, perhaps in a hospital that needs some. The higher fruit, I mean, extending one's repertoire to the more obscure diagnosis where perhaps the pickings in terms of percentage uh, discharges are less. How do, you, how do you do it? The AM score is an interesting development. Uh, this developed, uh, Derek Bell kind of leads on kind of bulk medicine in terms of national research um, and our Society of Acute Medicine. Uh, he developed an AM score, which is quite interesting. You, you ratchet up points. Uh, I think the most interesting one is here is that you're much less likely to be successfully discharged if you're a guy. So you actually do worse on your own. I think everyone knows that. But uh, so you ratchet up some points: age, transport, recent you know, recent readmissions is a, a a readmission is a negative factor. If you're scoring more than five points on your AMB score, there's a 96 percent probability you'll stay less than 12 hours. I think those numbers are extremely flattering. But it does give an indication of what you can do, what you can aspire to. The barriers to doing it, I think. Cost is one thing, difficult, uh, and pressure on beds, I think, is, is another one, which, which doesn't actually feature here, and actually a proper area in which to do your ambulatory care away from the pressures of the front door, uh, or, or somewhat parallel to that. Uh, concern about patient outcomes, probably the other one, the, the other main one for me. Catherine's going to talk now about uh, an even more well-developed service in Portsmouth, where she's just come from, whose repertoire I think is extremely impressive. So hello, I'm Catherine, I'm an ST6 in acute medicine and I'm a very recent migrant to the region um, from the Wessex region and we were just having a chat at a training day on Friday and Bill just asked me um, about ambulatory care in Wessex and it's actually quite an advanced concept in Wessex and I think that's partly because we've got the luxury of large numbers of consultants. Just to put this in context, Portsmouth currently employs 13 acute medicine consultants which is a vast number albeit six of them are currently part-time. They also um, strongly attract trainees to the region, so currently there are 30 acute medicine trainee registrars in programme. Portsmouth seems to attract a lot of the trainees when they reach their CCT, probably because we all like working with our mates. So for the past three years, six of the appointments have been trainees from CCT in Wessex. So. This talk um, is from a talk that we held an expedition in acute medicine to our local GP service in Portsmouth in 2010. And realistically, what we were trying to do is educate and publicise the service that we provide. And 
acute medicine and ambulatory medicine in Portsmouth um, arose in quite an ad hoc fashion. So principally we were dealing with patients coming in via ED and we weren't necessarily reaching the GP service as we might like. So I gave this lecture to a large group of local GPs and we were trying to really advertise what we do. It hasn't quite come out um, as much as we might like on the screen, but essentially what we're trying to say to GPs is we can manage these patients quickly, rapidly, and we can get them back out into the community avoiding admission. Um, the tagline for Portsmouth makes it look a very glamorous place, um, it looks a bit like New York, whereas if anyone's been to Portsmouth they'll recognise that actually that's not at all reality and it's quite a deprived area of care actually. So we have a <coughs> wide proportion of relatively young but often very unwell patients but these are a good target group because if you're a young patient often we can turn you around quite quickly. So I just wanted to go through how the service arose and maybe talk about some of the good things that um, have happened in Portsmouth and maybe some of the difficulties that occurred along the way. So one of the key points of the ambulatory care service was it was a single point of access via GP calls and the duty ambulatory consultant. So every day there was a consultant in acute medicine dedicated to ambulatory care. They took the phone calls from the GPs directly and also liaised with the emergency department to try and redirect people into the ambulatory care area. Now, there, it says here there's a clear access criteria to ambulatory care, and that was certainly something that we were striving for, but unfortunately what we often found was it did turn a bit into the medical mystery clinic, and that is deeply unsatisfying <coughs> as acute medicine um, doctors, because we want to turn around people quickly. We want them to come in with clearly defined problem list that we can investigate and manage and then get them home. If it's a medical mystery with symptoms that have been going on for a very long period of time, that's difficult for us to manage and often can lead to patient dissatisfaction as well because you often need further investigations and it takes a lot of time. We ambitiously aimed for a four-hour turnaround time and this was something that we felt very strongly we should be aiming for because we are an ambulatory clinic. Patients shouldn't be here all day while we sort things out. It's something that was difficult to, to communicate with patients because there is an expectation that if you're sitting in a chair, it's like a GP service. So you attend, you wait probably 10, 15 minutes, you have a half an hour appointment, and then you go home again. Well, obviously, that's not the reality of ambulatory care if investigations are required. So we had to do quite a lot of education with patients and with GPs to inform the patients coming in that this wasn't a very quick turnaround. Yes, you weren't going to be admitted, but there was a, an element of waiting involved. Coordination with appointment systems, very important. Um, if patients were arriving, we wanted to be expecting them to arrive, so involvement of clerical staff was very important. And what we particularly were trying to promote in Portsmouth was almost like a virtual clinic that we talk about. So there was a dedicated period of consultant time every day for e-clinic follow-ups and for telephone follow-ups, so following up results of investigations. And that built in an aspect of patient safety so that patients weren't getting lost. Every day we were aiming for the same consultant to be on for a week, but obviously that's not realistic in the, in the era of part-time consultants. So every day it had to be that any consultant could come on that day and be able to easily follow up patients. Portsmouth runs the DVT service through its acute medicine clinic, partly because it established it a long time ago. So it's been running pretty much for 10 years now and ambulatory care has been added on to the existing DVT service. So they've managed to hang on to that there. This is 
the hours that we worked. It was very luxurious, I think, a lot of acute medicine consultants would agree, in that there was, in terms of medical staff, a dedicated SHO, an acute medicine registrar, in addition to the acute medicine consultant. So we had a high level of medical care, and there was plenty of nursing staff. So on average, there were two to three DVT nurses on at any one time, an additional two nurses dedicated to ambulatory care. So a lot of people working in this environment. We put in this, please ensure that patients arrive on time because as everybody working in acute medicine knows, you get an afternoon bottleneck. So we were really trying to filter patients through the service on time, early in the day, if at all possible. Criteria for access to ambulatory care. I think most people in this room would probably be fairly comfortable with the idea of ambulatory care, but when this talk was given in 2010 to local GPs, there was a lot of confusion. Well, what do you mean? What is ambulatory care? Who are these people that you're seeing? And there were a lot of problems in the early days because Portsmouth originally set up its ambulatory care with trolleys. And bitter experience rapidly taught them that over winter, trolleys became beds. And there was not infrequent times when at least there was one bed patient in the ambulatory care area. If it got really bad, the whole clinic was taken over. Then you have a knock-on effect, there's no room to see patients, there's no room to manage patients, and actually you've lost what you were trying to achieve all along. So this was to educate GPs that the patients you should be referring to us are physiologically stable. They need to be able to walk. That was a, a defined criteria. They cannot be on oxygen. We shouldn't be using oxygen in ambulatory care areas because it raises the likelihood that the patient's going to need admission. So that was the baseline that we established. Um, we accepted hospital transport, although Bill was pointing out that actually it may not be that large a proportion of our ambulatory patients, but they had to be a bookable transport system rather than an emergency ambulance. <coughs> there were clinical incidents where patients arrived much more unwell than we were expecting, and if they're waiting in a waiting room with no support to you know, rapidly assess patients who are ill, it's not a safe system. So we need to be getting the right patients into the right area. This is what we did in Portsmouth. So, Bill was saying not many people um, accepted more than 12 conditions. We accept a lot of conditions. Um, pretty much anything we'd take through the door. Um, but what we particularly focused on was obviously DVT, cellulitis. Um, anemia was a good one that we accepted because you could pre-book them for the next day so you could plan your workload. We didn't have a strong neurology support system in Portsmouth. Southampton was our centre and we had a registrar on site and we could call for consultant help, but the acute medical consultants managed the majority of first presentations of neurology in Portsmouth. But there were some things that weren't felt to be acceptable. We didn't take new onset diabetes, and that was because that service had already been sort of chosen <coughs> by our diabetes team and they were managing that separately. <clears throat> no esophageal stenosis, again, there was already an endoscopy pathway. We didn't feel that it was appropriate to manage acute admissions from nursing homes um, because of the high likelihood for them not to be able to be discharged that day and because we didn't feel that we had the nursing and um, structures to support that. These patients are not in beds. If they do have continence issues, it becomes an issue for everybody in that area and for the nursing staff. So we didn't feel that that was an appropriate area to manage these patients. Painless jaundice. Yes, they could be managed in an ambulatory fashion, but what we felt was that the high likelihood of malignancy meant that it wasn't an appropriate area to be making a new diagnosis of malignancy. We didn't have the oncology support there and then, so we felt it was far more appropriate these patients should be managed through the gastro outpatient service. If they were unwell enough to need admission, then they would come into hospital. 
We didn't accept admissions from other non-acute NHS services because of, this was a primarily a service to relieve pressures on our acute beds. So we were looking at avoidance from admissions from GPs and managing ED patients. End-of-life care, I think, is an area that's very interesting to manage um, in acute medicine. But again, it was felt that the setup in Portsmouth wasn't appropriate to manage that. Communication, obviously very, very important, and I'm sure a lot of GPs would be very frustrated uh, at our inability to um, communicate effectively <coughs> with them. So all patients who came via ambulatory did get a structured discharge summary. Back in the day, that was on the old-fashioned written paper, but now they have developed their online discharge summaries. Um, and obviously, you had the opportunity to interact with GPs via the initial telephone call. So Bill's going to carry on in a minute, but it was just really to say that... Um, Ambulatory care in uh, Portsmouth, it started nearly 10 years ago. It's had a very rocky road. There have been high points and there have been low points. But I think in the southwest, there's a real opportunity to develop this service and to choose which parts of ambulatory care we really think can be effectively and safely delivered locally. So I think there's a big opportunity to expand this in the southwest. I quite agree with that uh, statement. Summary: An untapped resource here in the southwest. I think very hard, to, very hard to achieve actually. Um, but if you can, then you could potentially save your hospital. I think to a large extent that depends if the consultants are allowed enough headspace and essentially and time to do this. Uh, and just a word of advice: if you are trying to develop a system, my uh, my mantra is always: you, in a system in the NHS, you pull a patient to you. You don't rely on people pushing them at you. Uh, you clearly define what you want and you pull them in. Uh, and that works well for everyone. Uh, so that's the end of our talk. Any questions?